This podcast was recorded on the ancestral lands on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. This is Humans on Rights, a podcast advocating for the education of human rights. Here's your host, Stuart Murray. Homelessness. In 2019, Parliament passed the National Housing Strategy Act. The act recognizes housing as a human right and community organizations and governments to reform housing laws, policies, and basically create a human rights perspective on all of those laws and policies. And it was to involve communities in a meaningful way. I am delighted today to be joined by Melissa Stone. Melissa Stone has a great eye on what homelessness is, and more importantly, we're going to explore what she and her organization are actually doing about it. There's a lot of research on the challenges that homelessness causes, and I think we understand that. Maybe we can still continue to understand more of it. But the important part, I think, of our conversation today that we're going to have with Melissa is about what is being done about it, being proactive, being positive in the community. So I'm going to just really sort of take a stab. And Melissa, we chatted a bit before I hit the record button, and you were very, very generous with me to give me a little bit of pronunciation. You are the coordinator of Amu Wig Amig. Yep. And you are also the coordinator of Astam Api Nikinak. That's right. So if I've uh, earned your trust on that, Melissa, let's get the conversation going. Welcome to Humans on Rights. Thank you. So, Melissa, before we talk about the specifics of the project, let's get to know you. Tell us a little bit about your your background, where you went to school, what you studied, what got you interested in, some of the projects that you're currently involved in. So I am a Manitoban. I was born and brown in Manitoba. Moved to Winnipeg in 2006. I moved here for a job. I was working in as a psych nurse assistant. And I had a hard time working in the psychiatric hospitals and decided that I needed to, for my own health, uh, step away from institutions. So I took some time off and did some healing. And then I applied uh, with the Mama Wichita Center, where I am still currently working, in 2008. So I'm going on uh, 15 years working with the Mama Wichita Center. And I've had various roles being here, you know, working with uh, sexually exploited and human trafficked children. Uh, The Mama Wichita Center has two safe homes for for girls and trans, uh, two-spirited individuals that are still under the age of 18. So I started there, and then I became an outreach worker with the programs uh, through the Mama Wichita Center, and I was an outreach worker for 12 years. So I was out on the streets. I met lots of people. I looked for our, our missing youth and experienced a lot of joy. And also experienced a lot of what Winnipeg and our most vulnerable people, how they're living and how they're trying and 
And so then after 12 years, I decided that I wanted to work more with our unsheltered folks because those girls that I worked with 12 years previous were now adults, right? So 12 years doesn't seem like a long time, but when you're working with a 15-year-old or a 12-year-old, 12 years, they're now adults, right? So I would see them and I still wanted to support them and we still had that really good relationship. So I I moved myself over into our uh, Wichi Win program with the Mama Wichita Center, which the program supports individuals to get their own safe home, right? So I would go out on the street and I would go to you know, the waterfront, under the bridges, to, to some of the encampments, and I would build that relationship and I would offer them tobacco and I would offer them, you know, the willingness for them to, you know, speak to me so that I could support them. Some folks, it was, you know, right away. Other folks, it took some time, right? Because there's not a lot of trust. So I, I did that for a couple of years and I met a lot of individuals and I've, I've, I've listened to their stories and I listened to their what they were needing. And I tried to be an advocate because unfortunately people don't listen to them. There's a lot of stereotypes and assumptions and accusations, et cetera. So I wanted to, as best that I could, listen to them and, and, and support them. So it was evident that you know, a lot of outreach workers were meeting a lot of unsheltered folks that were, you know, struggling with everything, food and shelter and safety. and There was no freedom and, and their day to day was just trying to find food, you know, trying to keep themselves safe. So when the encampment started to be torn down, a few people decided as a community that we were going to partner together. And we were going to listen to them and we were going to do what folks wanted us to do. So we had a a day of offerings to individuals to come, to have some food and to write down what they needed. And what came out of that was that they don't want to leave their family on the street. They, They become family. One fellow said, we really need like our own village where we can still support each other, but feel safe, have the love, have some food, but still have each other. Because a village is all about family and love and support. So what came out of that and listen to what they said was and is a stamapinikina, which means come sit at our home. And our elder, um, Charlotte Nolan, I offered her tobacco and asked that she please help us find a name for the village. So she smoked her pipe for four days, and on her third night, it came to her, and this man was sitting on one of the trees behind Thunderbird House, he said to her, a stump, 
which means come. And then when she walked up, he said, Apiniki, which means, means welcome to my home or house, however you wow. choose. Yeah. So that's how we received our official name for the village. Yeah, that's amazing. So Melissa, thank you for sharing that. Let me just sort of just come back for one second. When you left Brandon, there's a part of who you are. You you want to help people. If I understand correctly, you were an assistant for a psychiatric nurse. So, I mean, there you are. You're you're reaching out. You're wanting to help people. Let me just ask you, what got you there? What made you want to do that? What was part of your reasoning for wanting to reach out and help people? So, I will be really honest. Uh, my mother also is a psychiatric nurse. And I grew up there, you know, she worked at the Brandon Mental Health Center. Uh, while I was in university, I worked there while I was a student in the summers. So literally as a child, I was around folks who were vulnerable and I watched my mom love them and support them and advocate for them. And You lived it. Right. And I loved it. And I always felt like if I could be that one person to someone that may make their day happy or may change the way someone is um, being treated, that would be good. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, you found yourself, I mean, it's uh, as you say at, at some point you, earlier in your comments that you felt you wanted to sort of quote unquote, get out of sort of an institution and become more sort of at the grassroots level, dealing on people that are dealing with these issues on the street, if you will. So, Melissa, I'm fascinated with the way you went through the process of being a part of an organization that listened to people. And I want to just stop for one second. I've used the term homelessness, and you use the term unsheltered. Is that the proper way to re make reference to this, Melissa, because I just think sometimes there's so much stigma attached to names. Are you trying to move away? Should I use start using words unsheltered? Yeah, unsheltered or someone who doesn't have their own home, right? When we're writing our proposals, well, we have to use their language. And so it's not okay, right? Because language has changed in in governments for a long time but they are changing which is nice um but yeah like so homeless is like it's like saying they're less right folks aren't less they just don't have their own home yet right? yeah no i appreciate that so so unsheltered or people that don't have their own home thank you for that correction i appreciate that you know melissa one of the things that you know whenever i hear an article or read an article or talk to people around the whole unsheltered issue. You know, we see it in Winnipeg in the sense that when you drive down Portage Avenue, there are people that are in bus shelters and they're there for a reason. But, you know, for those people that are driving by in their cars and on their way to work from their home to their place of employment, et cetera, it becomes a conversation about you know, it doesn't look great for the city, you know, that kind of sense. And, and, you know, we've had this conversation in the city of Winnipeg. Well, then let's just get rid of the bus shelters as if, as if, for example, that is going to solve the problem. One of the things that I'd love to explore with you a bit more is the notion about 
listening to those people who are unsheltered versus saying, we've done all this research, we've read all these things, blah, 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 blah. And so here's what we need to do versus have we listened to the people who are in the situation that we think that we're trying to help? So let's just take a moment, if you would, and explore a little bit more about how it is that you started to sit down and actually engage people because trust, as you said, is huge. So how did you engage the trust of these people to draw out what it was important for them so that they actually knew that, you know, there's the old adage, oh, I'm here from the government, I'm here to help you. Yeah, I kind of heard that before versus, no, we're listening and we are going to make a difference because you are. So tell me a little bit more about that process, please. Well, it takes a long time. I'll be really honest because of that mistrust. So folks who, you know, are living in encampments or in tents on their own, you know, they're constantly being harassed by society. They're constantly being harassed by police to move on. And so there is no trust. So you have to come in and you can't be, I want to be politically correct by saying that you can't be aggressive, right? You can't come in in a tie and a suit or your police uniform uh, because that is so triggering for individuals, right? So folks who live in tents get tickets from police for camping there, $650 ticket. They have nothing. Right. How are they going to pay that? So anyways, we came in as ourselves, right? We wore our sneakers and we wore our jackets and we didn't have any, and we were very submissive. But we offered our tobacco. And we offered water and we talked to people like they were people, not that they were anything less than us. That's huge respect is just offering some tobacco, offering a, a bottle of water and talking to them like, okay, please teach us. We are asking you. To teach us. And Melissa, let me just interrupt you for one second. Where, where would these conversations take place? Well, we would go to the encampments and we would play our music so that they knew that we were not sneaking up on them and going to be like, hey, you know, so we would play our music on our little phones. We would sing, drum, and we would go in and just introduce ourselves, offer, right away we offer tobacco. And that's how it starts. But we would consistently, every day, go hang out. And like I said, it takes a long time, so it's baby steps, right? And we didn't want to over overbear them, if that's a word. We didn't want to process we were being any type of a threat or another barrier. We wanted them to start inviting us. So it was baby steps. There must be an incredible variety of ages, variety of backgrounds of people that you're, you're getting engaged with who are unsheltered. Did you find that there was always a common denominator in your conversations with those people? Lots of individuals of every age group. 
who lives without a safe home. Lots of kids. I shouldn't say kids because I'm old, so I still think <laughs> that year-olds are kids. Lots of our young adults who are in the care of CFS, you know, at the age of 18, if they're not any in any type of program or have a job, um, are cut off of, of support from CFS. And so many of them become homeless and unsheltered and don't have their own home, safe home. So that was a huge, huge thing that we saw. We also uh, noticed that there are many, many, many men who are living unsheltered. More so than women, would you say, Melissa? Well, the issue with that is women are trafficked and women are exploited. So they're kept more underground, right? Whereas men um, aren't, or not all men. Um, and then, of course, our Indigenous relatives unsheltered is extremely high percentage, extremely. Folks that are coming in from their reserves for medical appointments can't go back because they have to have daily medical appointments, but then they're unsheltered. Um, you know, just so many various various uh, reasons and situations. Also, our individuals who are in the justice system, you know, are let out and dropped off at the Salvation Army. Yeah. So, you know, we learned a lot. We saw a lot. And it was worldwide. Yeah. And and I I mean, it's, uh, you know, you and I both know that that you have, with your background in coordinating for Astam, Api Nikinak, the really the little village, if you will, that is being put together, you know, behind Thunderbird House. Once you understood what it is that some of the people that were unsheltered, what was important to them, what was the next steps engaging the actual process of starting to build these, like design them, get a sense of size and what it might look like? So, uh, of course, we have partners. Um, and just so you know, we're up and running. We opened up December 1st. Um, so the process was we worked with um, community partners, which included End Homelessness, Winnipeg, uh, the Aboriginal Council of Winnipeg, Thunderbird House, who am I forgetting? Oh, uh, Eagle Urban Center, and then, of course, the Mama Wichita Center. So those were the... the and they have an Aboriginal health and wellness. Those were the partners that we all worked together um, to do proposals, um, to provide operational support while I was trying to figure out what our days would look like. So all of us together did this together, you know, begging for money. And, and then once we were approved, we went back to our lived and living experiential experts, I should say, to tell us and to guide us and to support us on building the village. And then we also have a council of elders and knowledge keepers who also supported, guided, and mentored us. Yeah, and how how did you determine where the location should be for for this first project, Melissa? So folks wanted 
the first village we wanted on Higgins, uh, on the waterfront there, across from the flower, the old flower building. That's where we really wanted it. But the city of Winnipeg owns that property, and and um, they were going to be using it for for something. So we couldn't we couldn't utilize that space. So then um, our experiential experts said, you know, we need to be somewhere where there's resources for folks, right? So that the community that they had been living in, they would still be, they wouldn't be leaving their community of friends and family that they've made like at Main Street Project or, you know, Asylum or Lighthouse or, you know, they wouldn't be necessarily be taken out of their community, like so many had in with residential school and 60s school, were taken away. We didn't, they didn't want that to occur again. So we asked, of course, Thunderbird House um, if we could build a village here. And they said, of course. You know? So that's how that all came about. Wow. Because the fact is, as you mentioned, Melissa, that you are open and operating as of December 1st. So congratulations on that for sure. Melissa, talk a little bit about the structures and how each individual, and I guess at this point you call it their home, right? I mean, it is their home. So talk a little bit about what is in each one of their homes. So we have four accessible units uh, for individuals who uh, use a wheelchair or a walker or, you know, have some mobility issues. Um, so we have four accessible units and 18 bachelor suites. Each person gets their own home with their own key fob that only opens theirs and can't open anyone else. So it's specifically just for their home. Our lived and living and um, experts wanted to make sure that this was going to be their home and that they were going to be safe in their own home. So we have a lodge, which is where we have uh, my office and a staff office. We have a commercial kitchen and we have a small clinical uh, clinic room. So we have partnerships with Aboriginal Health and Wellness and Dr. Barry Lavalley. We also have a huge programming room where we run programs every day, all day. And then we have a, cult a cultural room for our cultural mentor to have one-on-ones with individuals who need it and want it. And then we have all of our medicines in there. And it's just, a, it's such a beautiful room. And then circling around the lodge is all of the tiny homes. We are 24 hour staffed, seven days a week, 365 days a year, because folks need support and some folks may not be able to sleep at night yet so they need support then some folks may you know sleep all day and then need evening so it was really important that we had the 24-hour support for individuals as they're transitioning from such unsafe on the streets to being here and you know, transitioning into feeling safer. Mm -hmm. How, Melissa, 
do you decide who could become a resident? I mean, you've got 22 units in total, which is fantastic. And, you know, I don't look at this to say that you alone have to solve all the problems of the world. You're making a difference in a huge way in providing 22 homes for people. You know, we know that there's many more people that that require the kinds of care that uh, that you are providing at Astam Api Nikinak. How does it decide who it can become a resident? With our partnering nonprofit agencies, we built a small referral form. So all of the partners send us referrals, and then it's kind of like first come, first serve, right? So right now, as we speak today, we have 46 people on our waiting list. 46. And we're full. Yeah, you're full. And Melissa, I, I know the answer to this because I saw one of, your, one of your wonderful interviews that you did with the local media, but I'll ask the question, is there a time limit for someone who can stay at uh, Astham Api Nikinak? There is no time limit because everybody heals differently. Is the decision for a resident to say, you know, I pick a time, I'm just going to say three years, that during that time, there's been a, a really amazing healing process, that they're becoming more confident, potentially, if that's the right word, about who they are and what they can, who they want to be and where they want to go. Would they come forward at that point and say, I think I'm ready for the next step in my journey? And if that's the case, is there still a support mechanism? Because that's still a massive leap to to take. Yeah, there is. And I will be really honest. We had a really, really hard time securing funding for um, staffing operational. We still don't have funding for food. We couldn't find any funding for food. But we do have the funding just enough the 24-hour staff. So we have two, I guess, positions that I, I would like to mention, and that is our housing planner. Her name is Donna, and her position is getting folks onto EIA, supporting them with advocacy to, because there's lots of barriers with EIA. There's lots of Lots of barriers for everything. But anyways, so Donna supports the individuals who move in here because you don't have to be on EIA to move in here and have no income. However, you have to be willing to work towards that, right? Right. And and Melissa, sorry, just for people that are listening, they may not know EIA, Employment Income Assistance, correct? Sorry, yes. Yeah, yeah. So Donna helps them with that. And then once folks are ready, like you said, move on. Um, she will support them in finding a safe home. And then she will follow them and will be that support with them until they plus, I don't want you anymore. <laughs> but until then, we will support them. Yeah, absolutely. That is huge. Said. It's so... And we also do programming um, on, you know, tenants' rights and landlord rights, budgeting and and how, you know, pests, that how you keep pests away. Like we have 
so many programs to teach individuals. And we've also learned from the individuals some of the things that we forgot that they would like in our program. So it's really been awesome. Yeah. So that's Donna. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, again, it's, it, it just shows you some of the, the thing, you know, the, the humans that we have in the city that, you know, there's so much caring. I mean, there's so much more to do. I get it, but there's so much caring to talk about somebody like Donna, who I don't know, but as you talk about her, you know, obviously such a pillar for making this all be a, a success, but, you know, it occurs to me, Melissa, that, you know, some people may find themselves in their own home in Astam, P. Nikinak, that they see a stove and they don't know how to use it. I mean, those are just some of the things that so many of us take for granted that, you know, these are just realities of people who are unsheltered and given their first opportunity. So, there, you know, there's so much integration, I'm sure, that is part of this process. There's lots of grief. We didn't know this is something that we learned, is that when folks are leaving their family in encampments, folks are grieving because they're missing their family, but they're also feeling shame by leaving them and knowing that their friends and family are still freezing outside and they have a warm home. Because people who are living unsheltered and don't have their own home are wonderful, loving people, Stuart. Mm -hmm. Are so caring, so humble, and have the biggest hearts. So when they move in here, they feel they feel like they're doing wrong by leaving their loved ones out there. So it's it's difficult, right? Um, so we have programming on that. We also do a lot of cultural ceremonies. So we we do pipe ceremonies and we have sacred fires. Uh, we do some grief sharing circles and shame, feeling shameful, lots of one-on-ones and lots of like folks just hanging out by the fire and, you know, sending prayers with our tobacco ties and just asking so many questions. And But the folks here are coming together as their own now and supporting each other, right? So if a person is feeling you know, not so great. They'll go to David, who's our cultural mentor, and say, we need to have a fire, so-and-so. Okay, let's do it, you know? So it's really great that folks are starting to look out for each other here, mm-hmm. right? Right. They still haven't forgotten about their family that's out there, but at least they're able to go and see them and maybe give them some warm blankets or some food and then come back and then have a safe space to release that heavy energy that they're feeling, right? Mm -hmm. Two questions, Melissa, just, is there an expectation? I mean, somebody who's unsheltered, they're not able to afford food or any, I mean, so, so the cost of having someone come off being unsheltered to now having their home, how did you manage that financial process? What is there a relationship between the individual and their home? Or how do you how do you manage that? So our construction started right when COVID started. Perfect. So yep. 
Perfect. We ran out of supplies and money rather quickly due to the increase in everything and then the lack of supplies that we were getting. So we had some time to build really good relationships uh, with the RTB and the RTA uh, folks, relationships with employment and income. So we built some really strong relationships and they were so more than willing to support us in anything that we asked in any way that we could make our village minimal barrier for folks. So we also are in partnership and relationship with the Canadian Mental Health Benefit for Individuals. So we built that with that relationship. So it was all, you know, it was it was really sad that we weren't able to open quicker, but it allowed us to build some really strong supported relationships so that we were able to move people in as quick as possible and then get that, you know, that rent paid. Nothing comes out of their pockets, nothing. We only charge uh, what the folks receive from whatever they're under, right? So that could be disability or EIA or CPP or they're working and unsheltered. And then the Canadian uh, Mental Health Benefit, they were so gracious to allow us because most folks, you know, including myself, I'm not ashamed to say, we have uh, mental health issues, right? Where it's managed either by for myself is managed by a doctor, but for someone who's living unsheltered, they don't have a doctor and they don't have the ability to get to a doctor. So some of them are not able to be treated properly and, and get proper medical. So we built that relationship. So now we have them supporting us. Melissa, just at the beginning, I think you said that you had this amazing relationship with, and I'm, and it was an acronym. I hope I'm getting it right. RTB. Sorry, the Rental Tenancy Board. Okay. And then the, the Rental uh, Tenancy Act. Right, RTB, RTA. Fascinating. I mean, it's amazing. I want to pivot just a moment to talk about another project that you are very much involved in. Again, it was in the news, very much a. Um, I looked at and I'll just, you know, I, I'm going to use the term sort of a public washroom, but it has a name and you've taught me that it is Amu Wigamig. And I want you to talk a little bit about that, Melissa. So anybody who's driving down Main Street will see this project. Describe it physically and then talk about some of the elements that you're providing with that project as well. Is actually owned by the city of Winnipeg and it's a three shipping containers high right beside the Salvation Army, in between Salvation Army and Thunderbird House. It's on the Thunderbird House land where we are. And so it is it's a peer support resource for folks who are living unsheltered or don't have their own homes. There uh, was a very high need especially um, before COVID and during COVID, that folks didn't have anywhere to use a washroom. 
and there's no public washrooms in and around here. And, you know, the only place to use a washroom is in it, in the two bars that were here. And it was a need. However, we didn't want it just to be seen as a washroom. We also wanted to provide some programming for individuals. So, you know, we have our medicines if someone would like to smudge or are needing, you know, some sweet grass, cedar, the smudge folks that come in. We also provide, you know, that peer-to-peer support. So that's advocacy, um, maybe with their lawyer, if they don't have a phone, um, the staff will help them make a call. Or maybe it's getting a Manitoba health card. Most folks don't have their own phone. So it's a resource for people who are needing some support but don't have the ability, right? The folks there also, you know, provide positive relationships and build relationships with individuals and offer tobacco to build that relationship. We have water, have some donations of feminine hygiene. We've received donations for like toothbrushes or even, you know, a washcloth to wash their face. Folks don't have much of anything. So it's it's another really cool project where we're, you know, supporting and advocating, building those, you know, relationships to support folks who are living unsheltered. We also hand out harm reduction. May it be condoms or clean needles, pamphlets to apply here at Nikinak. We also have another program within Mumaway called Wichiwin. You know, they'll call them up and say, hey, do you have room for, you know, so, and, and then they call around also to any of the shelters to see if they have any spaces for, you know, an individual if they need somewhere to stay at night, right? So harm reduction just isn't handing out clean needles and pipes and naloxone. Harm reducing is everything, right? It's from shelter, your own home, to food, to shoes for your feet. It's all of it. It's not folks who aren't familiar, just focus on, you know, handing out pipes, handing out needles. It's not just that, right? It's clean underwear, it's toothbrush, it's condoms, it's, you know, just a phone to call to make a doctor's appointment. That's harm reduction. Yeah. So, Melissa, you've really had a tremendous opportunity to be a leader working with others to advance solutions as opposed to bringing, you know, a lot of times we hear that here's the challenges, we've got the research on the challenges, and that's important. It's important to have that information. But, you know, so often it sometimes stops there and and it never finds its home. And so what you and your team have done is you have brought the solution forward. And I guess I'd like to, you know, get your sense, Melissa, if anybody who's listening to this podcast what would you like them to take away as the most important 
element of trying to understand or, and I'll just say the word understand because you have to understand to be educated on it before you can take action. But what would be the most important element to understand about the, the broader public who really don't have a sense of what it's like to be uh, unsheltered? Or just to say one thing. Take your time and, and bring it as, and make it meaningful for you. Always says to me, treat people like they are people. And so, because I'm a heart person, I always, sometimes this is good and sometimes this is bad, I always try to speak from my heart. And I will tell you, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of anything and speak to people like you would speak to your own children or your own grandchildren, that they are your relatives and show love and don't be racist and don't be presumptuous and don't assume because it's not that. Nobody says, I want to grow up and I want to be living in a tent when it's minus 50 out in Winnipeg, Manitoba. It's not a goal for anyone. I'm going to leave it at that. Yeah. Okay. Melissa Stone, thank you so much for sharing who you are and sharing what you have been doing working with Astam Api Nikinak making a difference here in the city of Winnipeg and providing leadership and providing solutions to something that uh, I have learned that the term is is unsheltered. And that has been uh, something that I've learned from you. So thank you for that. And thank you for taking time to have this conversation with me today on, a, on an issue that is hugely, hugely important to us as a society. So thank you for your time. Thanks for listening to Humans on Rights. A transcript of this episode is available by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social media marketing by Buffy Davey. Music by Doug Edmond. For more, go to humanrightshub.ca. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness then check out the natural man podcast join me host mike c as we explore all areas of human wellness physical mental and emotional learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health remember your doctor works for you learn biohacks neurohacks ways to improve sleep and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.